It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of highlights from the stories we've run this week in the print edition. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and on the menu we have a seaweed menace on the shores of the Caribbean, the economics of croissants, and a tennis-loving physicist serves his final match. But first, the Great Fall of China was our cover line this week. Stocks plunged in the People's Republic, and fears of global contagion ran wild. But were they warranted? Stomachs are churning again after China's stock market endured its biggest one-day fall since 2007. Even Chinese state media called August 24th Black Monday. And from the rand to the ringgit, emerging market currencies slumped. Around $5 trillion has been wiped off global equity markets since the yuan devalued earlier this month. That shift, allied to a string of bad economic numbers and a botched official attempt to halt the slide in Chinese bourses, has fueled fears that the world's second-largest economy is heading for a hard landing. But we argued that the doomsters had gone too far. China's future lies with its shoppers, not its exporters, and services, incomes and consumption are resilient. And what about the feeling that we've seen all of this before? Fears over China are feeding the second worry, that emerging markets could be about to suffer a rerun of the Asian financial crisis of 1997 to 1998. Similarities exist. Notably, an exodus of capital out of emerging markets because of the prospect of tighter monetary policy in America. But the lessons of the Asian crisis were well learned. Many currencies are no longer tethered, but float freely. Although the rich world has the least to fear from a Chinese slowdown, it's not immune. When Beijing sneezes, Berlin, among others, catches cold. Germany, the European Union's economic engine, exports more to China than any other member state does. Share prices are vulnerable because the biggest firms are global. Of the S&P 500 sales in 2014, 48% were abroad, and the dollar is rising against trading partner currencies. In addition, the bull market has lasted since 2009, and price-earnings ratios exceed long-run averages. A savage fall in shares would spill into the real economy. So, our recipe? It's up to governments the world over to develop their own safety nets. Plentiful credit and relentless Chinese expansion kept the world ticking over for years. Now, growth depends on governments taking hard decisions on everything from financial reforms to infrastructure spending. It's the economy, stupid, was a favourite election-winning line of Bill Clinton's. But in other countries, more basic concerns plague citizens, like who's taking out the trash. One article in our Middle East section explained why protesters in Lebanon are raising a stink. Spend enough time in almost any Lebanese home and you're likely to hear the phrase, Wine al-Dola. Where is the state? 
Don't waste your time looking for it at the landfill. The last straw, for many, has been the piles of uncollected rubbish that have festered on the streets of Beirut throughout much of the scorching summer. So demonstrators took their anger to these rubbish-strewn streets. Protests last weekend quickly turned chaotic, with Beirut's fancy downtown area engulfed in clouds of tear gas as rioters set fires and threw stones and police fired rubber bullets and water cannons back. Frequent blackouts and water scarcity exacerbate frustrations. And bickering among rival groups has kept the country without a president since May last year. The Prime Minister is standing in for him. The root of Lebanon's current mess is sectarian. Power is divided between Sunni and Shia Muslims, Christians and Druze. Enforcing policies on the ground are the Zaim, local heavies loyal to their sect's political leaders, most of whom have been in power since the Lebanese civil war ended 25 years ago. After the shooting stopped, many militia leaders simply swapped their combat fatigues for business suits. Cronyism infects business and politics alike. Thousands of miles away, beachgoers in the Caribbean also face a bombardment of unwanted rot. The bombardment takes the form of globs of sargassum seaweed, which have landed on Caribbean beaches this year, forming piles that are sometimes metres deep. The seaweed could be ruinous for local economies. Hilary Beckles, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of the West Indies, calls it the greatest single threat to the Caribbean economy I can imagine. There are some ways to get rid of this putrid nuisance, but some hurdles do persist. A minister from the island state of St Vincent and the Grenadines suggests intercepting the weed with floating booms. That would be expensive. A barrier just 300 metres, 1,000 feet long, would cost $80,000. Construction equipment can get rid of the stuff, but scoops up too much sand. Even America's space agency has intervened to trace the seaweed's ebbs and flows. NASA tracks the clumps in the ocean by satellite, the basis for a system that can provide early warning of inundations. That will not help until a way is found to divert the weed. But it might spare holidaymakers unpleasant surprises. A more agreeable smell was in the air in an article in our business section as it visited a bakery in Manhattan run by Maori Rubin to better understand how baked goods are peddled in a low-margin market. Mr Rubin is among those bakers who revere traditional methods but want a fat profit. Yet a good bakery can end up as bad business. Flour is cheap, but organic butter, which makes up half a croissant, is not. Central locations for outlets are expensive to rent. In all, it costs Mr Rubin $2.60 to make a $3.50 croissant. Higher prices put off customers, so Mr Rubin has identified two ways of kneading out a profit. First, don't be just a bakery. He also sells fancy salads and sandwiches to office workers, which have higher margins. Second, use data to cut waste. Mr Rubin studies sales to discern trends in demand, then adjusts supply accordingly. There are no brownies or carrot cake on Mondays or Tuesdays. People don't buy rich desserts after decadent weekends. All this attentive marketing has meant a steady rise in returns for Mr Rubin's delicious business. It now has seven smaller shops in New York and seven outposts in Japan, with plans to open in Dubai. Baked goods do have a way of bringing out our selfish side, but as one article in our finance section found out, although generosity is a hard sell in times of scarcity, there are exceptions.
In the semi-arid lowlands of Mufindi, in southern Tanzania, water is hard to come by. Villagers rely on irrigation to grow maize, potatoes and spinach. Informal and often woolly codes govern how much water each farmer diverts to their own fields and how much they leave for their neighbours downstream. Some farmers naturally turn out to be more grasping than others. A new study published in the Journal of Feminist Economics set out to discover why. In hypothetical times of scarcity, only high-status women shared the water fairly. Low-status men and women would share fairly when water was plentiful, but were stingier when water was scarce. High-status men hogged water at all times. The researchers then split the participants into groups by status and gender to discuss the outcome. Rich and powerful men, it turned out, were less worried about being greedy, either because the gains dwarfed any fine or because they assumed their downstream neighbours would not dare complain. In Mufundi, it matters a lot where you sit in the pecking order. One villager said that she had to keep quiet since the person overusing the water was influential. By contrast, another said, low-status people are not expected to break the rules. Women, even of high status, also seem inhibited. These expectations suggest that there could be a self-reinforcing cycle in which low-status people are more readily shamed. The apparent generosity of women and the poor, in short, may not be the product of compassion but of discrimination. From the lowlands of Tanzania to the tough streets of Naples, and our book section reviewed The Story of the Lost Child, the final instalment in the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante, a pseudonym for an anonymous Italian writer. The story which unfolds over 60 years is high drama set in an exceptionally vivid world. The two girls, Lila and Elena, inhabit an operatic universe of violence, jealousy, love triangles and political upheaval. They are unforgettable characters in the grand tradition of the 19th century novel. And the novels dazzle. The saga is both comfortingly traditional and radically fresh. It gives readers not just what they want, but something more that they didn't even know they craved. The story of the lost child continues this exploration into life's complexities. This is a great novel of female friendship, one that reveals admiration and envy, competition and self-sabotage, emotions that many women experience but do not discuss. Competitive friendships can sometimes feel like you're locked into a game of tennis with the to-and-fro and and one-upmanship. But for the physicist Howard Brody, tennis was nothing but a welcome intrusion into his life as an academic. Our final story is from our obituary section, which bade farewell to Brody and his courtside physics. From his office at Penn, he could see the courts and on holiday he made for them. And around the mid-1970s, he noticed that racket heads were getting bigger. Were they therefore better? As he tried to find out, to his surprise, an almost unexamined branch of science opened out before him. In other words, the science of serves. 
Within a few years he found himself the world authority on the elasticity of strings, the dwell time of balls on them, ball trajectories, windows of acceptance, the gap between the minimum angle needed for the ball to clear the net and the maximum that allowed it to stay inside the baseline, twist weights and sweet spots. Regularity was a feature of his academic game. In 75 articles, he laid out his findings with copious graphs and equations. He became an advisor to the Professional Tennis Registry and the International Tennis Federation, among others. But science alone can't make star athletes out of average players. In practice, as he admitted, an awful lot still depended on how good the player was. Side-by-side video clips of himself and Roger Federer showed no difference in the physics, but rather a lot in the physique. He did, however, have a list of tips for avoiding unforced errors and improving technique. Don't hit the ball too hard. When serving, hit the ball as it's falling and add lots of topspin, giving gravity a helping hand to curve the ball downwards. It was topspin, of course, that Newton had admired. So when you next see Federer play, think of Newton watching that apple fall. In short, Professor Brodie concluded, players had to obey the laws of the universe. Simple, really. Well, there's game, set and match for this episode. I'm Anne McElvoy, and that was Tasting Menu. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more And is all priced at 50-80% to less than similar brands Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.